G'day everyone, good to see you. Uh, my name's Rowan Kemp. Uh, I work here on campus with the EU, Monday to Friday. You'll find me uh, not often down in PNR. I used to come down these parts a lot because I started out at Sydney Uni as a student as an engineer. Uh, yeah, true. That's, that's my memory. We're about that excited about being an engineer. <laughs> uh, I, got, I managed to somehow get through two years of electrical engineering before bailing um, and t- picking a much easier path. I just went to science and did pure mathematics. Um, I managed to uh, get a scholarship from the government to do a PhD in pure maths, uh, which just goes to show people really will do anything for money, um, even mathematical research. That was certainly true in my case. And you'd think that having done a PhD in pure maths, pure mathematics, you'd think that I'd be a big fan of logic. Uh, No. Being honest with you, when I hear the word logic, my feet want to run a million miles and my head immediately wants to go to sleep because uh, formal logic is hard, frankly it often seems reasonably pointless and frankly it's boring. And I remember doing a maths course, I think it was first year engineering, I've tried to blot it out from my memory, but I think there's still a textbook lurking somewhere down at the bottom of one of my bookshelves. Uh, Proofs and problems in calculus and it had a really bad orange cover which I think is seared into my brain. And I, all I can remember about this course is we seemed to spend a lot of energy proving things that we already knew to be true, which really did seem to strike me as a very pointless exercise, and uh, the point of it really did pass me by. The fact of the matter is that formal logic and proofs don't float most people's boats. However, intriguingly, most of us actually put a very high value on being rational. We want things to be sensible, reasonable, we expect consistency and a fair degree of coherence in our interactions with the world around us. You want your lecturers to make sense, I take it. You uh, want your mobile phone company to charge you according to a sensible, logical billing system, not just a random charge thrown at you. Uh, You want your girlfriend to be rational, uh, or maybe you want your boyfriend just to be a bit human. We want the world around us to operate in some sort of ordered, rational way so we can make sense of it, so we can master it, and so we can work out how to live in it. And that desire for rationality brings us to the complaint that's prompted today's talk. The complaint is this. The complaint is belief in a religion, and let's be specific here today, belief in Christianity is irrational. It's not logical to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. Now, this is not a new complaint. This is actually quite a lengthy philosophical history. It has its roots in the Enlightenment and modernity more generally. It's also a complaint that's got considerable airplay in the last few years uh, through the rise of what's been called uh, the new atheism. So today we're going to look briefly at this question. Is Jesus logical? I'm going to approach the question in two ways. I'm going to spend most of my time on the first one and a, a little bit at the end on the other one. But... This is my first approach. Is it logical to believe in Jesus? Is it rational to believe the Jesus of the Christian Bible? My answer actually isn't just going to be, yes, it's rational to believe the Jesus of the Bible. I actually want to say something stronger. Namely, I'm going to suggest to you that believing in Jesus is the most rational, the most reasonable worldview available to you. But to do that, I'm actually going to start a fair way out and work in. So we're going to go on a bit of a journey. So let's think about logic and rationality just for a moment before we fall asleep. One of the most astounding truths 
in all the world is that the world is open to our rational investigation. Now, you may never have actually stopped to consider just how astounding it is that just by thinking we can uncover nature's secrets. That science is possible, that it actually works, is not automatically given. Our world, though, is ordered at a profound and deep level and through playing around with mathematics in particular, we can uncover the deep ordering of reality. And even more significantly, the scientific and mathematical models we dream up to describe reality don't just describe reality, but astoundingly, they actually predict, often, what we will then later find. That is most astounding. So I'll give you an example here from the writing of um, John Polkinghorne, who was an eminent uh, quantum physicist, who went on then to become a prominent Christian thinker in the area of science and theology. Polkinghorne relates the story of the physicist Paul Dirac, who formulated a really important equation which succeeded in combining two significant areas of physics. He managed to combine through this equation quantum theory and uh, special relativity. He combined these two in a consistent fashion. This is what Polkinghorne writes. He says, An immediate but unanticipated bonus from the discovery of this equation was that it was found to imply that the magnetic interactions of electrons were twice what one would naively have expected them to be. This was actually already known to be the case from experiment, but no one previously had been able to understand why it was so. And then he comments, a few years later, more thinking about the same equation led Dirac to the fundamental discovery of the existence of antimatter. Such continuing and uncovenanted fruitfulness is very persuasive that one is really onto something of real significance. See, when we strike upon a successful scientific model described in our logical mathematical systems, we, we actually seem to be capturing something that is profoundly true about the reality we inhabit. It, it's so profoundly true that it actually can predict things that we don't yet know are out there. So Carl Pearson was one of the founders of modern statistics. He coined the term standard deviation, which you all go, ooh. <laughs> right? He captured this point. He said, the mathematician carried along on his flood of symbols, dealing apparently with purely formal truths, may still reach results of endless importance for our description of the physical universe. Mathematicians sitting up there in their high ivory tower of Carr's Law, doing their little maths things, they don't care about the world. Believe me, I've been there. They don't care about any of you, anything at all. They're just doing their little maths. And they come up with this stuff which is related to nothing. But profoundly, later on, as real science sort of catches up, they go, wow, these mathematicians playing around with logic have actually captured something about the very nature of reality that I'm only now, 50, 60, 100 years later, discovering in the real world. We live in a deeply ordered world, astoundingly open to our rational investigation. But why? Why is the material world so open to rational scientific investigation? That is, a, as the mathematicians like, that is a non-obvious problem. It's not immediately clear why the world is, is open to rational scientific investigation like that. It's a question that many scientists who have been confronted with, as one person put it, the unreasonable, unreasonable 
effectiveness of mathematics and science. They're confronted with this and they're driven to ask, why is it so? Why? And so I want to ask you, why do you think? Why do you think the world is as it is? Why is it so open to human logical analysis such that we can build bridges, such that we can create telecommunications, such that we can invent the we? How come we can do that? Paul Davies is a famous uh, physicist and uh, uh, very expressly not a Christian or a follower of any of what you would consider to be sort of the um, mainline faiths in the world today. But this is what he says. He says, The success of the scientific enterprise can often blind us to the astonishing fact that science works. Although most people take it for granted, it is both incredibly fortunate and incredibly mysterious that we are able to fathom the workings of nature by use of the scientific method. And none less than Albert Einstein, who I believe was a pretty smart dude, um, he realised the astounding effectiveness that the scientific method gives us and perspective it gives us on the real world. And he just thinks it should make you wonder. This is what he said. How can it be that mathematics, being after all a product of human thought, independent of experience, how can it be that mathematics is so admirably adapted to the objects of reality? Or again, he says, and I love this, the only, he says, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe, the only thing, is that it is comprehensible. The only thing you can't comprehend about the universe is the fact that we actually can comprehend it at all. It just makes you think. Well, can I say, at least it ought to make you think. Why is the world so open to our scientific investigation, to our rational logic? Why is it so ordered? Why is it so seemingly elegant? Is it really just coincidence? Is it really just chance? Now, I can't step from that, uh, from that observation about the nature of reality around us, its deeply ordered nature, to some conclusion about the existence of a divine being, that is deism. I, you can't do that step. I don't think that's logically justified. I, let alone sort of stepping to the existence of a personal God in theism, let alone stepping to the truth that I believe that Jesus is Lord. Answering the why question is beyond the power of scientific logic. But that doesn't mean that answers aren't possible, nor that answers are unimportant. But what I can say is this, as a Christian who believes what God has revealed in the Christian scriptures, when the Bible tells me that the God who truly exists is a God of order, who creates in an orderly fashion, whose creation is a reflection of his own character and glory, when it tells me that, and then I look at the world and go, wow, it is deeply ordered, I see, okay, yeah, that, that actually makes sense, okay, that, that does actually provide a framework for interpreting the orderliness of creation, the orderliness of the world around me. Uh, Polkinghorne again put it like this. He says, If the world is the creation of a rational God and if we are creatures made in the divine image, then it is entirely understandable that there is an order in the universe that is deeply accessible to our minds. Now, let me be clear again. It's not saying you can't prove from this that there is a God, let alone that Jesus is Lord, but flipping it around, if Jesus is Lord and the Christian Bible has it right, then it does explain why logic and rationality works in such an effective way. 
So that's my first stake in the ground today. That the God who's revealed in the Christian scriptures makes sense of the ordered reality we see around us. If I actually wanted to make a stronger claim, I want to suggest to you that the Christian scriptures makes the most sense of ordered reality. In fact, of all of reality. Now, you know you can't apply your scientific method in every area of life. You're going to run into trouble when you try to apply the standards, methods of science for the rest of your life. Prove to me that your great-great-great-great-grandfather existed. You're just not going to be able to do that using the scientific method. Prove to me that my wife loves me. Not going to happen. You just can't... Or she loves me, but you can't prove it (laughs) using the scientific method. Prove to me that God exists. You just can't do that using the scientific method. That's because that's not how history, sociology, relationships, theology, they don't work that way. They're not science. You can't take the scientific method and apply it to non-science rest of life because the rest of reality doesn't work like that. As human beings, we need a broader range of approaches to life. You know this just to cope with the reality of relationships, but also to deal with questions of history and theology, and I would say, and the person of Jesus in particular. Because when it comes to grappling with the person of Jesus, the logic you have to use is the logic of history, because you're dealing with a person who existed at a particular point in time. Christianity is the conviction that the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's Christ and Lord. Now, those words just need some clarification because they're often misunderstood. Christ means anointed one, literally, or chosen one. Christianity affirms Jesus is God's Christ, his chosen one who stands at the centre of God's plans for this world. In particular, Jesus is at the centre of God's plans, Christianity says, to save and restore us and the rest of creation from our present state where we are subjected to decay, alienation and death. But Christianity also affirms that Jesus is the living Lord, that is, Jesus is God's chosen ruler over all and therefore also the judge of all before whom we will all give an account. Now, this conviction, this this central Christian belief that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Christ and Lord is not a blind conviction. It's not and not intended to be a conviction that you hold irrationally or that you believe blindly as though faith, which really just means trust, is somehow illogical or unfounded. That's not actually what the Bible teaches about faith or about Jesus. The Bible calls for people to acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that he is Christ and Lord, based on evidence. The particular items of evidence to which the Bible points are Jesus' death on the cross in fulfilment of earlier prophecy and his resurrection to life a real, physical, immortal life the third day after he died. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely critical, according to the New Testament itself, in confirming Jesus of Nazareth's identity as Christ and Lord. In fact, the New Testament says, if he wasn't raised from the dead, in this particular way, not resuscitated, raised from the dead to an immortal, imperishable, new sort of physical life, then just chuck all of Christianity out. It is the only domino you need to knock over before you can throw all of Christianity in the bin. Just to mix a few metaphors at that point. So, it's a fair question to ask, can you be sure that the resurrection actually happened? In fact, I'd say that's an absolutely essential question to ask. Now, again, we're outside the realm of science here, aren't we? We're not claiming that this is a repeatable experiment 
that you can run this afternoon in your lab time. Let's just see if you can raise somebody from the dead and have a go in your mechatronics lab. That would be interesting to even try to do it in a mechatronics lab. But anyway, we're asking here a straight-up question of history. Did it happen? Now, Dr Tom Wright is a British historian and theologian who's written extensively on the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. He points to two key pieces of evidence. First, the reality of the empty tomb. Second, the reported meetings with Jesus after he died. And this is what he writes as he sort of goes through, having gone through all, all the historical evidence. He says, The empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus, when combined, present us with not only a sufficient condition for the rise of Christianity, but also, it seems, a necessary one. Nothing else historians have been able to come up with has the power to explain the phenomena before us. What he's saying is, if the tomb was empty and they really did meet Jesus, that's sufficient, yes, for the Christian claim. But actually he says, in fact, you would have to have that to generate the history of Christianity that we've had. It's actually necessary, not just sufficient. And he continues on. This remains, of course, unprovable in a logical or mathematical term. The historian is never in a position to do what Pythagoras did. Pythagoras constructed a theorem to prove that this must always be the case. With history, it's not like that. History, after all, is mostly the study of the unusual and unrepeatable. What we're after is high probability, and this is to be attained by examining all the possibilities, all the suggestions, and asking how well they explain the phenomena. He concludes, in terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the case presented that the tomb plus appearances combination is what generated early Christian belief is as watertight as one is likely to find. Working with the logic of history. Working with the logic of history. Now pause there just to think for a moment. This is the world, what he's talking about, what I'm talking about, this is the world in which you live. It's a world in which, if the history is right, a dead man rose from his grave after being dead for 40 hours. 40 hours. Right? The body has started to well and truly decompose. This is the world in which you live, that this thing happened to one guy. What do you make of it? Now, we can go and stick our heads in the sand and say, well, frankly, it's got nothing to do with me. And refuse to answer any of the obvious questions that only a moment's reflection on these, uh, these facts prompts. But then, frankly, that's going to place you out of touch with reality. And that's the, it's the reality in which you live, right? This is your world. I want to suggest to you that everyone needs a toe. Um, yeah, I know, deeply profound. You don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> I mean a theory of everything, right? A theory of everything. This is the physicist's holy grail, right? But the reality of a toe, of a theory of everything, I would suggest to you is present in Jesus. See, life is more than the scientific. You've got relationships to negotiate. You've got meaning to find. You've got suffering to face. You've got ethical decisions to be made, deaths to grieve, children to raise, plans to devise, complex real-life problems to solve. And we can stick our head in the sand for as long as it's convenient to do so, but you're going to have to operate with some sort of framework as you travel through life. 
Now, in engineering and science, it's, we know the rules. It's, we know the system, right? You just follow the rules, submit to the engineering standards, and hopefully nobody will get hurt. <laughs> but the rest of life isn't like that. How are you going to move forward in the complexity of life? You need a theory of everything. You need a worldview that's going to put it all together. In particular, there's this troublesome data point of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That has to fit into your system, your theory of everything somewhere. If he really did rise from the dead, what, which is the conclusion that the historical evidence points to, your personal worldview needs to take account of. I want to suggest to you that Christianity provides the framework, the worldview, which gives an answer, which provides the toe, the theory of everything. It says, yes, the world is an ordered creation of an ordered creator God who's created us in his own image, including creating us with a capacity for ordered, rational, logical thought and the ability to discern the deep ordering of the creation in which he's placed us. Further, Christianity takes account of all the data, including the, I said troublesome, but really it's a glorious data point of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, for which other worldviews fail to give an account. And that's what commends the Christian worldview over all other worldviews and makes it, I would say, the rational choice for you because it deals with all the data. Moreover, Christianity in the person of Jesus provides answers to real questions beyond the reach of scientific logic, questions that really matter to us. It actually makes sense of the issues of life which limited scientific logic is never going to certainly solve. The questions about relationships, the questions about ethics, about suffering, mortality, hope, even death itself. So, I want to finish by taking our original question, is Jesus logical, and just putting a a little different spin on it, just as we wrap up. We've been asking whether it's logical to believe in Jesus, to adopt the Christian faith. I want to ask a slightly different question. Is Jesus himself logical? That is, is Jesus, as we meet him in the most reliable historical accounts we have, that is the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in the New Testament, is this Jesus, who's recorded for us, a logical person? Does he make sense? And the answer is yes, actually. He makes makes sense. In fact, he makes a lot more sense than you might have realised. See, according to the record we have in the New Testament, Jesus quite powerfully used logic to point out the fallacies in what his opponents said about him. I'll give you an example. The incident I'm thinking of is um, recorded in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12, you can look it up, where Jesus has just healed a blind and mute demon-possessed man such that this man who is blind and mute, he can now see and talk. Now that's an astounding miracle which leaves the crowd of onlookers gobsmacked and wondering if Jesus was someone special in God's plans But the religious right of the day, that is the Pharisees, who really didn't like Jesus, claimed rather that Jesus was casting out these demons using the power of the devil. Jesus responds with powerful and devastating logic. He just just reasons out. He says, well, think about it. If through me the devil is casting out the devil, he's divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because we all know every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Well, you know that. Think about the New South Wales Labor Party. 
Oh, I'll be fair. Or think about federal Liberal Party. Anyway. Jesus goes on. He then pushes the logic further. He actually says, and I'll quote here, but if it is actually by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So Jesus is actually inviting people to draw the logical inference from what he's doing, from what's going on around them, from these remarkable healings. Here is God doing something amazing. He's bringing about the healing that, frankly, we'd all like to see in the world. And from what Jesus taught, we know that this was actually intended as a sign, just a small little snapshot, a window, into the great future coming kingdom of God that God was going to bring about. When God will bring such a changed state of affairs into this world that everything that is wrong will actually be put right. That's an example of Jesus' logic. It's a logic that gives hope. But Jesus' logic is often, was often very unexpected. It, it was and is countercultural. I'm thinking here of my last point, Matthew 16, where Jesus asked some of his followers, on the basis of all they've seen, including that miracle I just mentioned, who do you think I am? And they answer, you're God's Messiah, you're Christ, the Christ, we talked about before. You're his chosen one who's coming to save. But what Jesus says next is very surprising. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus' logic here is that it is necessary. That's the word that's used. It is necessary, it is essential that as God's Christ, his chosen one, four things must happen. First, I must go to Jerusalem. None of these are what you expect, right? Because the Jerusalem was the power base of his opponents, right? Those who wanted to see him dead. I must go to Jerusalem. It's essential, it's necessary that I suffer at the hand of the religious leaders. It's essential, it's necessary that I be killed. It's essential, it's necessary that I be raised on the third day from death. That is so not what you would expect God's chosen one to say. But that's because there's a deeper logic here. The logic of God and not the logic of humanity. We think greatness is in terms of power and esteem and privilege. But the ways of God revealed in Jesus is that to be divine is actually to give yourself, even to death, to save those who are in need. For Jesus to save us from the judgement we deserve He died in our place, bearing our guilt, our shame, our penalty. That is the logic of love. And Jesus followed up immediately with this call. Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The unexpected logic of Jesus is that salvation actually comes through losing your life. That is, metaphorically, handing it over in trust and faith and love to the one who has done exactly the same thing for you, who's handed himself over to you for your good, for your salvation. And what Jesus says there is that only in that way will you find your life, by giving it over to him. That's the logic of Jesus. How are we going for time?
I've no idea. We have some time for some questions? Sure. Can I just say that if, if you want to take this further, which I'd encourage you to do because I think you need a theory of everything, a good place to start is actually read some of the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. If you've never done that, please make sure you do that. And actually decide what you think about Jesus, not on hearsay, but on what's actually recorded. That would be a great place to start. Well, firstly, um, I'd like to thank Rowan for addressing us today. Uh, so if you'd like to join with me in thanking him, that would be great. <laughs> The second thing I would like to say to you is that uh, most likely you received a piece of paper as you came in. Um, on the back of that is a nifty perforated communication card um, for just to help us know who's been here and how many people came and things like that. Um, if you uh, take the time to fill that out and um, give it to someone who will have a little green bucket um, before you exit, that would be wonderful. Um, and what, if you want to do that now, that would be fabulous. Um, and uh, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to uh, send them through that number during this time at the moment. Um, so I'll just give you a little bit of a second. Um, also, to let you know, we'll be having afternoon tea um, out in the PNR courtyard afterwards. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of goodies and things like that. Uh, and Ron will be there to answer any extra questions that you have if you're too chicken to message them to my phone. Cool. Alright, so we'll just take a couple of seconds um, and if you have to rush off to class, feel free to leave now. But I'm sure that uh, question time will be more than uh, stimulating, so feel free to hang around for that as well. great uh, and I'll just read it out for you uh, it's look you're assuming uh, I, like obviously the voice is mine it's not the person in the thing but bear with me um, look you're assuming that Jesus rose from the dead it's completely impossible how do you expect us to believe this Rowan yeah and that's that's the right question to ask isn't it because that if what I've said is right that takes us to the very heart of the Christian faith did this guy really rise from the dead I want to say at this point You've just got to acknowledge the question needs to be an historical one. You can approach the question with, you might call it a, a, um, a what I would call a blinkered scientific worldview that just says, sorry, the only things that I will allow ever to happen in reality, past, present or future, are things that make sense to my scientific system. I just think that that's probably just a little bit on the uh, arrogant side because there's all sorts of things that happen that we, for which we don't have explanations. All sorts of manner of things. Um, there, <coughs> weird things happen in hospitals, by which I mean that sometimes people have an illness and then suddenly the tumour is not there two weeks later. It just shrinks, it disappears. Unusual things happen for which we have no scientific explanation. You might call that a miracle. But I'm just saying that weird things happen. 
So it, you just can't go into life saying, sorry, the only things I will allow to happen are the things that fit my system. Especially you can't apply that to things that have happened once off and in the past. You actually have to approach it from a historical point of view. And therefore I think the, the, the right tools, the, the right logic is the logic of history and therefore you need to actually do some work and actually look at the historical questions, look at the historical evidence and as Tom Wright said there, you're not going to come out with a scientific proof. No one ever does in history. The best you come out with is strong probability. And that's, that's when I think you look at the evidence, that's what comes out with the resurrection of Jesus. How did God then, if God did that, how did he do it scientifically? What actually happened? What medical or, or physiological transformation did he work? I don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. They don't tell us the chemical or the physiological uh, mechanism. It just tells us that, that this is what happened. He was raised from the dead to a new physical existence that was immortal, that it was physical, and it was not going to see any decay. And you need to work out on the, using the logic of history whether you think that actually happened or not. And you've got to do that by actually engaging with the evidence. And I'd, I'd encourage you to do that uh, by using actually someone who's uh, a historian who's actually trying to do it. So Tom Wright, Dr Tom Wright, uh, N.T. Wright, has written a great big whopping, whopping huge you know, green brick of a book on the resurrection of the Son of God. goes through all the sort of evidence. That's a great place to start. The good thing is he's a clear writer. Um, the bad thing is it costs you a bit of money to buy it. But it's quite likely Fisher's got it, won't you? Borrow it um, and read. Uh, do we have? Should we stop? <laughs>